When I was two or three years old, I had a problem. Little Ember, about yay high, I had a lot of trouble sleeping in my own bed. My mom became a little bit desperate in the situation, even calling in grandparents to come from Pennsylvania down to where we were living in Virginia to help watch over me, to stop me from getting out of my bed and going into their bed. But for young me, I was afraid of the dark. I wanted to seek safety with my family, with my parents. And this was my opportunity to do so. Another fear that I had that was pretty prevalent at this time was of the Wicked Witch in The Wizard of Oz. I was also not a fan of her flying monkeys. However, on one fateful night, these two fears came together. I had woken up, and I was afraid of the dark. My mother, I understand much better as a mom now myself, was frustrated with another night of bad sleep. And she came to my room to tell me to go back to bed. But when she entered that room upset with me, bothered by being woken up once again, it was not my mom who entered. It was the Wicked Witch of the West. And she claims, I don't know if I believe it, that she did not transform into the Wicked Witch of the West. However, it was a very real memory for little, little Ember. Eventually, I did get better at sleeping in my own bed. However, even as a teenager, I did the not cool thing and regularly slept with a nightlight. You see, I've always had a major fear of the dark. Up there with roller coasters and heights, two fears that I've also worked on confronting in the last few years. But I had this fear of the darkness, fear of trouble sleeping in the darkness even. Has anybody else had a fear of the darkness? It's okay if you still do as an adult. It's okay if it was just something you had as a kid. You know, as I was reading the Iliad this week, I'm working through this ancient Greek story. And in this story, Hera goes to talk to Sleep, who is a god, and asks Sleep to put Zeus to sleep so that certain actions can happen in the battle at Troy. She asks this, and Sleep is terrified of the idea of angering Zeus. Sleep recounts that he did this to help Hercules in his trials, and when this happened, Zeus was so angry that Sleep had to flee and hide with his mother. His mother was Night, or the primordial goddess Nyx, and he went and hid with her and was safe because Night was the one goddess that Zeus respected or had some level of fear of trying to confront. So if even a god has a fear of darkness, I think it's understandable that two-year-old Ember, teenager Ember, and any of us might have a fear of darkness as well. But looking around at the electricity around us, at the electricity powering our ability to record this, we have conquered darkness. As a society, we like to think that we have control over when there is light. So that now, when we have a blackout, when the power goes out in a storm, whether it's 
intentional um, from damage or whether it's something that happens uh, in terms of the system being overloaded. Both of these are emergencies because a valuable resource of electricity is lost and we do not have power. We do not have the ability to control light. No longer can we relate with darkness in the way our ancestors did as they stood out under starry skies. They had a complete darkness that we cannot quite comprehend. Even our ancestors who merely lit candles had a different experience than us. And I think in our hyper-individualist culture, this dislike of darkness is something that we have internalized as well. And that is that we do not like to approach our own shame, our own pain, our own hurts, and the internal darkness and shadows that we might have, the things that we try and hide, the things that we try to avoid as we put forward a face of perfection, happiness, and that everything is going the right way. So about a year ago, I took the chance of confronting both of these fears in my life. I acknowledged that I was afraid of the dark and that why was I afraid of the dark? Was there a way that I could get more comfortable in the dark? So the simple way that I incorporated this into my routine was that I started to wake up and not instantly look at my phone and see that blue light, but also not turn on any lights as I navigated around. When I did some journaling or reading, it would be by one small reading light giving off a small bit of warm light that's a little bit more calm on the eyes. But I would take time to meditate and to spend time in darkness, letting my eyes get comfortable with it, letting myself get comfortable with it to soothe these fears that younger me had so, felt so deeply. And it was a richly rewarding experience. It was especially rewarding because I also paired it with the practice of shadow work. Shadow work is particularly popularly talked about on YouTube, which is where I heard about it the first time, but also in earth-centered circles, as well as in therapy. Shadow work, as referenced in our opening words, uh, is related to this concept that Carl Jung talks about of the shadow self, the self that we project onto others from our own insecurities, from our own fears, from our own damage, from the things that we try to hide or are ashamed of. How are we projecting those onto others? If we think someone is being too proud of themselves, is it because we do not have pride in ourselves? How is this shadow self manifesting? And so I took an 80 prompt shadow work journal guide and worked through these 80 prompts. They were questions about how your relationship with your parents was, the habits that you carry with you from when you were younger, what happens when you get angry, you know, what, just asking you to catalog and feel through and deal with these emotions in order to become a more whole, more integrated self. And both of these practices were really rewarding. The, these practices came to mind as I engaged our UU Common Read. For those of you not in the know, each year the Unitarian Universalist Association picks a common read, a book for all of us as congregations to potentially offer studies about, offer messages about, offer workshops about. 
it's a chance for us to all be working through the same sort of things across the denomination. And this year's was a book titled On Repentance and Repair by Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. And this is a fascinating book. It explores the work of Mamonides, who was a Jewish scholar who cataloged and codified a lot of the traditions of his time. And he was in particular looking in this instance at repentance. How do we offer repentance? And as I was reading this book, I couldn't help but think about my shadow work journey, about this fear of imperfection, about this fear of letting people know that we might have messed up or done something wrong. And to me, this repentance is at the core of making steps towards becoming a more integrated and whole person and more integrated, whole, and responsible towards our communities and towards our world and our societies. So what is repentance? Maimonides offers us five steps. First, naming and owning harm. You might notice that in these five steps, we don't start with asking the person who was hurt to give forgiveness. Instead, we are starting with the person who caused the harm, intentional or not, to understand what happened, which is why we start with naming and owning what happened. I think that we can see this evidenced in a lot of justice work. When we engage in justice work and we begin to learn about systemic racism, systemic homophobia, systemic transphobia, and so many other ways that systems in our culture are designed to oppress, we like to distance ourselves mentally. We like to think, I'm, I don't do those things. I'm not one of those bad ones. Because we don't want to name and own that we might have caused harm. This is also important on an interpersonal level. If we hurt a friend, if we did something wrong, if something that we did hurt a random stranger, can we own what happened and that whether intended or not, maybe there was some fault? And if it was intended, can we own that we intended to do that? We have to be able to name and own this harm if we are ever going to grow and move towards actually being able to really seek real repentance and real repair of this damaged situation. Our second step is that we must begin to start to change. This means we need to not only see and understand what we've done, whether that's interpersonal, whether that's related to systems of oppression, whether that's in communities, we name and we see and we understand what happened, but then we consider how it is we can change. How do we go from being this person that caused this hurt to being a healed and whole person in a right relation with others? These are important questions for us to consider if we're going to be seeking forgiveness from someone else. How do we begin to become the person that we need to be? This involves learning. This involves listening, which is often not something that we love to do in our culture. Our third step is the first step where we actually begin to engage with the other person. Step three has two elements to it, restitution 
and accepting the consequences. So restitution asks us to consider what material ways or emotional ways might we be able to make this right. Say you cause someone to be late for a flight. Might you offer them help in getting them faster car to get there? Might you offer to help them rebook their flight? If you hurt someone emotionally and you're acknowledging that you have caused this pain and that you want to be a better person going forward, are you willing to pay for therapy for this person that you hurt? How do we acknowledge our wrongs and find ways to fix it? I think when it comes to systems of oppression, we've begun talking about reparations, we've begun talking about the concept of land back in terms of the colonial struggles for justice, and we see those as ways that we acknowledge that for real systemic change to move from point A to point B, we cannot make that healing journey if we don't make actual change, if we don't acknowledge what happened and how that needs restitution. But I think that, you know, it could also involve in this, in works of systemic oppression, it could mean funding, helping fund, donating to an organization that is doing important work. Maybe it's, you know, any variety of things. These are really come down to each individual situation. You need to consider what is a way that you can make this right and listen to the person you hurt if they have thoughts about how you could make it right. And in that listening to the other comes the second aspect of this, accepting the consequences. Did you hurt a close friend with something you said? The consequence might be that they want to set the boundary of not being your friend anymore, and you need to be okay with that. I think of celebrities posting their quick PR apologies online, which is actually talked quite a bit about in the book. And often what they're trying to do is avoiding the consequences. Can we be willing to admit the ways that we've been involved in these destructive systems, the ways that we've been involved in destructive behaviors, the ways that we have hurt others, been less than perfect, and that we make mistakes, and that those mistakes have consequences. We have to do this if we are going to create communities and systems of healing. We have to be willing to accept the consequences. Only in step four do we finally get to the apology. In the apology, we are finally able to approach the person, having done this inner work, having begun to understand how we caused this harm, and beginning to think about how we change and how we make it right, and being willing to accept the consequences, then we can come to them and say, I would like your forgiveness. Here's some of the work I've been doing. You know, how can I make these situations right? Let's work towards healing. This is a system focused on providing wholeness for the victim and for the communities and not putting the responsibility of forgiveness just on them. We have to be doing this work of repenting and re rebuilding if we are ever going to be doing the forgiveness. Forgiveness is not the aspect we're focused on here. This is about the repentance. Of course, this is funny that I'm here preaching in a UU setting about 
repentance as a former evangelical. This is repentance in terms of internal work, in terms of communal healing, in terms of understanding that you did something wrong, not repentance in the sense of I did something wrong and now I'm going to hell and I need to repent for it. This is a very different understanding. This is an understanding of the ways in which we are bound to each other in the ways in which our actions have consequences. That provides us an entirely different context for asking for an apology and asking for forgiveness. Maimonides also provides a whole framework for how this could look, whether there's possibly others involved, whether it's a communal setting, and their stages, if the person chooses to forgive or not. But that is not the focus of this. This is on repentance and repair. The forgiveness is not where the onus of responsibility is. Our fifth and final step is that we then must be making different choices. We've done this inner work. We've offered our apology. Whether it is accepted or not, we accept those consequences. And then we are able to demonstrate that this was real and not just an act that we were putting on to get the forgiveness by acting differently and changing and becoming a better, more whole, more self-reflective person because we can admit that we made a mistake, that we did something wrong. I think that this is really a cultural shift for us in the United States. We live in a heavily individualistic culture. We saw hints of communal thinking in terms of COVID, but we also saw the individualism there as well. It is hard for us to picture ourselves as communal fabric when so much of our existence is about I am my own person who has my responsibilities. This manifests itself in a culture which asks the person who was harmed to quickly move on and offer forgiveness. Rabbi Donnie Ruttenberg writes, just let it go can become an adaptive strategy in a culture that doesn't have other meaningful mechanisms to offer, a to offer after a rupture of relationship or of care. So I think that this is really true, that we mostly see this let it go, move on, sweep it under the rug attitude with regards to repentance and with regards to forgiveness. The burden in our culture is most of the time on the person who feels wrong. Why can't you just forgive? This is why we often get in our news these feel-good stories about, you know, a murdered person's family forgiving the murderer or the person killed by police brutality's parents coming and forgiving the police and being okay with them. And these are sold to us to stop us from being angered because we need to move on. We need to sweep this under the rug and move on to the next thing. We are individuals and our only responsibility is to ourselves. And this is not a healthy way to build healthy systems, healthy culture, healthy communities, or healthy whole integrated people. We have to be willing to admit that we have made mistakes. I think that our inability to admit to mistakes is what makes it so easy for us to be manipulated in our wider culture and our inability to <coughs> admit when we've done something wrong uh, and to ask then for forgiveness uh, instead of the person being forced to give forgiveness. This is 
so different and will allow us to not be manipulated as easy into being constantly convinced of, oh, you know what's right, so you should like argue with that with every person that you talk to, or you know, we love our chances to argue online, but we know now that often those are manipulated by other forces to make people feel worse about situations. We have found that social media can be this place where we can be manipulated in our feelings of being right. But I think that same manipulation applies for pulling us in to these systems of oppression. We can't admit our mistakes. We can't admit our involvement with systems of harm. We can't admit how those have in, been internalized in us. We can't admit anything less than our perfection. We don't want to acknowledge our shadow self, our darker self, the harm that we might have caused others. And that then allows us to be pulled deeper into these systems that hurt and harm others. So, what does this look like in personal and communal settings? I think on a personal level that it helps us to become integrated whole people who can love our whole selves, who can be our whole selves, because we've learned that it's okay that we're flawed, that we don't have to be perfect, but that we do care about understanding ourselves, that we do care about doing better, that we do care about naming and owning the harm we cause, making it right, and seeking to change. These systems help us to keep growing as individuals, as communities, and as societies. <clears throat> And I think it helps us to confront that sometimes we do these things without intent. It doesn't matter in systems of oppression that are as deep as the ones that infect our culture, whether you intended to engage in an act that destroys the earth, whether you intended to engage in a racist act, a homophobic act, or engage in transphobic thinking, these things are part of the system and might not be intentional, but we have to be able to name and acknowledge and grow and change. That is what repentance offers. That is what engaging with our shadow self offers. Only then can we be integrated and whole people who are journeying towards healthy and happy lives. And I think that these individuals exist in communities that hold this space in a delicate way, a space that offers concrete ways for addressing issues that break covenant, for addressing issues that hurt others, for crossing of boundaries. We must have systems in place so that we can then work on resolving things. And I think that then having these systems in place, being people who engage in these conversations enables us to have tough conversations about the past and about the things that we have inherited from our systems and our wider culture to be more whole and healthy communities. We must be people seeking healing, wholeness, and right relation with each other. We must be people willing to admit that we aren't perfect and that sometimes we make mistakes. Repentance isn't something to fear, and we should be willing to admit 
when we are wrong, so that we can grow in ourselves and so that our communities can begin to model this behavior and grow together in healthier, more holistic, and whole selves. We must do this important work. If you'd like to engage this reading a little bit more, we're doing a series on the Common Read. We're going to be offering sermons in January, February, and March, as well as then workshops on Zoom on Thursdays in the evening on February 22nd, March 14th, and April 18th. We'd love to have you join. You can find more at fourthu.org slash upcoming. Let's do this important work of repentance, repair, and becoming more whole, healthy, happy individuals, and more whole, healthy, and happy, and caring, and loving communities together. Welcome to today's version of Getting the Message. I'm the Reverend Dr. Jonifer Kuponokwang, Interim Senior Minister here at Fourth Universalist Society in the City of New York. And today we are doing a role reversal because usually Amber, our Director of Religious Education, Amber Kelly, um, is the one that interviews me, but I'm going to be interviewing her. And I wanted to begin by asking the typical question of where you drew the inspiration from for today's sermon. I mean, obviously, we are doing a series on the UUA's Common Read on Repentance and Repair by Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you were able to just pick a section? Because obviously, it's a book and there's a lot of content in there. Right. I mean, you know, as I uh, mentioned in the message, but also as you know, we've discussed, we're having multiple workshops, we're having um, other messages. There's a lot of content in this book. But as I was reading it and thinking about, you know, I knew that I was going to be kind of giving the kickoff uh, sermon. And I was thinking, like, you know, what what stands out to me? And the today's reading was one of the sections that I highlighted on my Kindle. And I was like, I think I can preach from this. <laughs> And, you know, it was about that repentance involves this deep internal work, which I think is just really important. And I think that, you know, so obviously drew from the book, but like we've had a lot of conversations about the goals for the interim period here at Fourth Universalist as we seek to build towards our future and what that looks like. Um, you know, so I think that kind of inspired me, but then also just my own practices um, in thinking about shadow work, which I talk about in the message. Uh, as well as just like doing that internal work of admitting the ways in which we are flawed, the ways in which we've done something wrong. Um, and so um, last year especially was a really big year for really consistently doing that like daily journaling, engaging tough topics and like trying to meditate and think through these these challenging things because you know the, the work of repentance is a challenge, hence the the title. Indeed. And so when you were talking about that work of self-reflection, right, um, how, you know, I considered you to be an empath because I've, I've worked with you and I've seen you working with others and you're a highly empathetic individual, which makes it fairly easier to do this work of self-reflection and doing the shadow work, as you called it. Um, what 
would happen though with someone who may not be capable of capable of that, like a narcissist or one who has maybe experienced a trauma to the degree where they aren't able to do that work, that inner work that you mentioned. Right. Well, you know, and I think the thing is that everyone has the shadows. Everyone has the parts of them that they may be projecting and not um, wanting to to care about. And, you know, you know, you name uh, an empath, which, you know, I think is fair. (laughs) You know, in in another time, you know, I might have been very like publicly like I'm an empath and like, but I think that we've seen how that can even take on some toxic, um, especially like I've seen it like personified on social media, like where people are like, you know, like I'm just so bothered by all these things because I'm an empath because they're not putting boundaries around things. So they just like feel that they've got to take on all of these burdens onto themselves. And that I think at times that empaths can be so obsessed with helping others, with feeling others' emotions, that they get out of touch with their own emotions. And so, you know, there's ways that you can be an empath in a healthy way, and there's ways that you can be a maladaptive uh, empath if we're using therapy language. (laughs) And, you know, so I think that um, in my own life, I had definitely fallen into the... um, forgetting to pay attention to my own emotions because I was so busy paying attention to the emotions of others. And that was something that I realized in doing the shadow work. And I think that this deep internal work, you know, I think um, that sometimes there's some people that are just going to have too much trouble to get through that. I think I, like it surely is the case where there's 6 billion people or 8 billion people in the world. It, it, not not everyone's going to be able to do this tough, this tough work and not everybody's going to want to because it's got to be something you're willing to do. But as a you, you, I believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And I have to believe that eventually people could find ways to begin to do at least some change and begin to do this in ways that are healing and not in ways that weaponize this inner work to harm others in ways. Because that is a possibility too, that you know someone who is perhaps very heavily on the narcissistic spectrum could learn all of this language and then weaponize it against someone else. Um, and, you know, there, so there's definitely, you know, it, it's not perfect and, uh, you know, it's not a one size fits all, but I have to believe that people are inherently good in that we can do this work to heal ourselves, to become whole people, to become integrated people um, internally. And that even if that's incredibly hard and even if it takes a long time that that change can happen um you know that doesn't mean that you, that someone needs to necessarily be always engaging with that person who is not showing that change you know i think that's one of the things we see in the the common read in the on repentance and repair is that you know you have to have shown that change before the person can even ask for forgiveness. And if the person doesn't think that you've shown that change, then they can have the boundary and say, nope, sorry. <laughs> um, and so I think that that, you know, doesn't mean that we have to um, necessarily remain in tight covenant to use UU language, but that um, I, I don't want to believe that anybody's hopeless. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's There's so many different directions I could go with that. But when you were talking, it reminded me of the fact that yesterday was the fourth anniversary of, um, or third anniversary of the January, uh, maybe it was fourth anniversary, right? Um, no, 
third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection event and whether there's been any sense of remorse or admission of that and how this year really is a question of what reality we want to engage with um, and what constitutes facts anymore these days, which is, I think, so pertinent to um, this conversation around what do we even need to ask repentance and forgiveness for if people never thought that what actually happened happened um then what what are we dealing with here if people seem to come from two different worlds right gosh a few different things came to mind um so a like you know the naming and owning that's one of the one of the steps of repentance like that we can't begin to rebuild this community to repair the the breach of trust if people are just flat out refusing to um, admit that something happened that um but actually as you were talking about it i think about a program that happened actually shortly before i started here at fourth universalist um where they heard from someone who had grown up in white nationalism and did manage to break free from that mental conditioning and was now trying to do important work to make up for past harms, to give restitution, but also to try and say, hey, this is a broken, flawed system. <laughs> like, here are the flaws in your in your logic, like to try and encourage others to make that same journey and to be a visible person saying like, hey, I made this journey. Um, so, you know, that got me thinking about people being able to um, come out of uh, broken past systems. Like, you know, I... Um, you know, at one point in my high school career, I was a hardcore libertarian who thought that, you know, the Civil War was about personal liberties, um, you know, so um, once again, I have to hope that people can and will change when presented with the possibility to, um, but that, you know, at the same time, we can't be in covenant, we can't be in right relationship. I'm big on the UU words today. Um, <laughs> that. We can't do that if there isn't the healthy ability to understand the wrong that's happening. And, you know, and um, is you know, kind of funny, I, I, I resisted making any evangelical preaching about repentance jokes in the sermon. Um, <laughs> and, you know, also winter storm ember has been a little bit of a letdown. So I don't know that I can even make a winter storm ember joke um, <laughs> here now. <laughs> it's supposed um, to have a huge impact, right? On, on us today. But, you it know, did. Your sermon did. Yes. But uh, repentance, um, you know, in this evangelical sense is like not necessarily the internal work, but the, the calling um, others to repentance. And I think that both are like, you know, different interpretations of repentance, but um, I think that in, in liberal progressive religion that we're often afraid of, you know, I think we're getting better at like the more like prophetic nature and at least like some folks are like willing to be out there and calling out these, these systemic flaws. But sometimes on an interpersonal level that requires like actively calling someone to repentance that's um that you like as a family member that you, you see engaged in a harmful action um you know you, 
Um, there's a reason why in the Maimonides steps about like forgiveness that if the person doesn't, um, you know, make the corrective things, if they, um, uh, if the other person is not willing to offer forgiveness, then other people are brought in to kind of be like, okay, like, let's look at the situation and like understand what's going on. Um, so I've kind of lost my <laughs> train of thought. No, I, I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you bringing in the fact that this is a spiritual practice and that um, Rabbi Rundberg, obviously coming from the Jewish tradition, did bring in Maimonides. And is there, what is it within Unitarian Universalism that helps us engage in this work? Because the motivation, like you were saying, having grown up evangelical as well, is the threat of hell and damnation. And if God doesn't forgive you, and that really is more important in that world than other humans forgiving you or, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it, since it's such a individualistic mm. type of relationship to God that, you know, asking for God's forgiveness is tantamount to, um, you know, your one way ticket to hell, basically. Right. And since we don't believe in that as universalists, because that's how we were founded um it's the idea that there is no hell and or you know the other way to put it is that we're responsible for loving the hell out of the world right and um bum. and so how how do we approach it i know you brought up the whole idea of covenant but what if a congregation for example doesn't explicitly have a covenant on how to get back into right relationship. Or maybe they don't even have a covenant of right relationship. So what, where do they draw their inspiration from or motivation from, I should say, to, to engage in this work of reparation? Well, so first of all, this, this has me thinking about actually was having a conversation with a friend this week who was talking about like a conversation that she had with like an uncle, uh, who like is very much in this, you know, evangelical world. And she was saying like, if it's only the threat of hell that is stopping you from being a good person, and that doesn't like really reassure me that you're actually a good person. Mm -hmm. um, like if it's only the threat of hell that's stopping you from murdering someone, that might be a bad sign. Um, uh, so, you know, there's a whole thing to unpack there with the, with the evangelical perception that, you know, hell is the reason for our good behavior. Um, so, you know, you know, I think as with like the humanist tradition in um, uh, in the Unitarian Universalist world, especially like the, the Unitarian side, um, you know, there is that tradition of, uh, you know, believing that that we can work on ourselves, that we can, um, you know, be good without the threat of hell posed over us, um, especially, you know, the, the Unitarian and the Universalist coming together on that one, um, that goodness was possible without that threat of eternal damnation. Uh, but that, you know, so A, like, like you said, covenant, really important for like this work. Uh, a congregation, you know, I think should work on having explicit covenants, explicit steps on right relation. I think about our working policies that we have for our kids, RE, and they include like steps for both saying a kid has crossed a boundary and has caused like a disruptive learning experience and is um, you know, engaging in harmful activities in class, but then there's ways for that to be addressed and repaired. So I think that having these sorts of things explicitly 
spelled out is a healthy and good thing for the congregation. Um, that you know that there's steps to observe to figuring out how to get back in um, right relation when that covenant is broken. You know, as, I'm biased as you know the RE teacher that every um, September in our first sessions we make covenants with the students because we want to lay the ground rules for what this class experience is like for them and for how we're going to do it in a way that provides them safety and fun, but also that respects each other and, and builds that space. So I think that, you know, the, the kids modeling good behavior to explicitly write out what matters to us and how we resolve situations when they go bad. I think that that's important work for congregations to engage in, to be uh, healthy and whole. Indeed. So thank you for kicking us off and thank you for laying that groundwork from an early age. And what I'm getting out of this today is that this whole process takes self-reflection, it takes self-differentiation, and it also means that the community needs to get involved at some point, either through coming up with a covenant or Sometimes, like you mentioned, if that person is not self-aware enough, then there could be an intervention kind of moment to bring everybody back into a, a, a state where everybody is in right relationship with each other. And sometimes none of that works and we just have to figure out a way to let go and, and move forward. And I know we're out of time, but can you tell us a little bit more about what to do in the future to engage deeper in this work, including some of the discussions that you're going to be having and yes. that we're going to be having on, you know, until um, March of this year. Yes. So we will be engaging in messages um, across multiple months here. Um, we're going to have special theme services where we engage these topics of how to repent, how to repair, how to be in covenant and right relationship in our UU language. Uh, but then also we're going to have three workshops that are based off of the templates provided by the Unitarian Universalist Association to kind of engage this work a little bit deeper. Uh, and that is, those are on, going to be on Zoom and they're open. If you're not a member of Fourth U, you're welcome. Uh, if you're watching this from another congregation, your congregation is welcome to engage in it with us. Uh, February 22nd, March 14th, and April 18th. And those are all Thursdays, and they're all going to be at 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, on Zoom. Um, you know, if if we end up with like 50 people, then maybe we'll make it seven to nine. But, you know, that's, an, <laughs> that's another discussion. Uh, but uh, it'd be great to have folks there to engage and consider, like, what's going on with this work. Fourthu.org uh, slash upcoming. Uh, the sign up should be on that page. Uh, but we'd love to have you there to consider how to repent and how to repair and how to care for our communities. Thank you, Amber. What a great way to kick off the new year with our value around transformation, which is at the end of the day, um, what this whole process is about. We invite you to join us next time for getting the message and to continue this discussion about repentance and repair. Thank you for joining us. Mm -hmm.